We're in Luke 7 this morning, verses 36 through 50. If you're joining with us, we've been walking through Luke verse by verse, and the Lord has certainly been humbling us and teaching us uh, through it. I read this quote this week. I thought it was helpful. It said, worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. And we certainly do live in a, in a world that is out to convince us that sin is normal, from advertising to education to political maneuvering. The message is all around us. And the problem is that, that, that it's not just out there. There's something in us that is, that is drawn to that, in the dark recesses of each of our hearts, we can justify our own sin. We are skilled at excusing, at explaining away, and coddling any number of thoughts, attitudes, or actions that transgress God's good will. Of course, the problem with all of that is, is the more I'm comfortable with sin, the more that sin seems normal, the more that I'm able to explain it away and justify it, the less likely I am to hate it and to seek to put it to death. The more normal it seems, the more I want it around. The more I coddle it, the, the more I refuse to kill it. So our passage this morning in Luke 7 is monumentally important for us. Perhaps by God's grace and through His Spirit, applying this word to our heart, we might hate our sin. But that isn't the end goal. The end goal isn't just a deep hatred for sin. The goal is to have a deeper and truer sense of our sin, not so that we walk out of this church beating ourselves up and heaping guilt upon ourselves. The goal in seeing our sin clearly is that we might love Christ more deeply and be more devoted to knowing and serving Him in light of the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. So I think you'll see that develop in our passage this morning. But as we turn to it, we turn with the hope of, of transformation. That's what God's Word does. That's how His Spirit uses the Word to transform His people. So we go to it with the hope of change, and we begin with this glimpse into the, into the grace of God in Christ as the unapproachable God becomes approachable in Christ. Look in verses 36 through 39 with me. Point number one, if you, if you like to keep track, through Jesus, the unapproachable God is approachable. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. That's Simon the Pharisee. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman, a woman who, of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, uh, I, I'm going to learn to read, alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So Jesus, as this paragraph opens, has been invited into the home for a meal by a Pharisee. And we've seen in the Gospel of Luke that, that many, most probably, of the Pharisees have their mind made up about Jesus. They have decided in their hearts that Jesus has to go. We have to be rid of Christ by one means or another. But apparently there's, there's at least one out there, maybe more, who is still a little bit curious about Christ. He's heard that this man might be a, a prophet, so he invites him into his home to see for himself. The Pharisee's name is, is Simon. We learn that later when Jesus addresses him. I think we would probably, the, the, the general gist that you walk away with here of Simon is that he is maybe curious, but overall I'd say he's pretty skeptical of who Jesus is. He's curious yet skeptical, skeptical of Christ. So Jesus accepts this invitation. He goes into the home of the Pharisee. And while Jesus is reclining at the table, the unexpected happens. Something a little bit crazy happens, and Luke draws your attention to it by saying, Behold, it's like, look at this. Look and see what happens. And one of the things that happens is an uninvited guest shows up to this party. Now, some of us get a little worked up when we aren't expecting company, and the doorbell rings you go into undercover mode and you start peering through the blinds and you start throwing toys into the closet and yelling at the children to clean up you know as a side note if if you find it somebody from church breathe a sigh of relief and say oh good it's just family i don't have to clean up but as worked up as we can we can get by an unexpected guest the surprising thing the thing that, that Luke says, behold, is not that an uninvited guest shows up. In fact, in this time and in this culture, if you threw a banquet, it wouldn't be unusual to leave your doors wide open, even to eat outside at times, and guests could come and they could kind of sit around and listen to the conversation, perhaps even engage. So what's the surprising thing? What's the thing that Luke says, look at this, behold this? Well, look back at verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. The surprising thing is not that an uninvited guest showed up. The surprising thing is who this woman is. That she is a known sinner. She has a reputation in the city for her lifestyle. Now the text doesn't explicitly spell out for us what the nature of her sin is. We can, we can stab at it and say perhaps it was some sort of sexually immoral life. Perhaps she even profited from her lifestyle. And this certainly would have given her a reputation in the city. So maybe it's sexual sin. It would make sense. There seems like there's very few sins that cast a shadow on our past like sexual sin. But the point of the text is not to nail down the specifics of her life and her situation and where she struggles. The point of the text is to point us to Jesus 
that, that in Christ and through Christ we can approach God. The unapproachable God becomes approachable in Jesus for those who recognize that they have a reputation and for those who recognize their sin and receive his forgiveness. When this lady hears that Jesus is at this house, she had to go. She has to go. She grabs the most expensive ointment she has. This would be some you know, aromatic ointment, sort of like, you know, perfume sounds too feminine, but something good smelling that's expensive and costly. And she hustles over to this house. She, she enters into the room and she finds Jesus laying on his side, conversing with the other guests. And as she approaches Christ, she is completely and utterly overcome with emotion. She breaks out in weeping. And this isn't like a manly cry, you know, where you can look up and the tears stay in your eyes. This is rain coming down from her eyes, and it's landing on Jesus' feet. And as she notices that she's weeping all over Jesus' feet, she noticed that his feet have not been washed by her host. And so she would let down her hair, which would have been socially unacceptable, it would have been undignified, but the lady doesn't seem to care at this point. She's come to demonstrate her gratitude and love to Jesus, and in a move of sheer humility, she uses the only thing she has to wipe and clean his feet, which happens to be her hair. And once she's, she's cleaned his feet, she kisses his feet, showing deep reverence and love and respect for Jesus. And then she takes that expensive perfume and she anoints Jesus' feet from out of the alabaster flask. So that's a expensive stuff. This isn't Axe body spray spraying on his feet. What a picture, right? What a picture of this lady's deep devotion and love for Christ. We don't get a single word from this lady in the entire narrative but I don't think we need one. We don't get a single word, but we don't have to hear her words. She announces herself loud and clear, and her actions are her announcement. She has a total disregard for all those in the room that might be judging her. She's overcome the sneers and jokes associated with her reputation. She casts off all social customs if it means serving Jesus. Her deep emotion is expressed in her pool of tears at Jesus' feet. There's a willingness for her to be humiliated and letting down her hair and cleaning the feet of Jesus. She has brought her best in the form of this ointment. We get no words from this lady, but she is shouting from the rooftops that she loves Jesus deeply and sincerely. See, she doesn't care to even come across put together. Some of us like to pretend like we're all put together all the time. She's forgotten all about that. She just wants to show Jesus that she loves her and that she's deeply devoted to him. I think it's clear, and I think we'll see as the text develops, that this lady has already at, at some point received the forgiveness of sins and she wants to show her love and, and care and service to Jesus in response to the one who has saved her. So she walks in. She does these acts of service. 
in the very presence of this woman who's known for her sin makes Simon the Pharisee uncomfortable. He's a little uncomfortable that there's a woman of the city who's known as a sinner that has come to his party. And so there's one quick warning for us here as a church, as a body. A church, it's possible for a church to unsay with its culture what it says in its doctrine. It's possible for a church to unsay with the culture that it creates what it proclaims to believe with its doctrine. Simon surely knew the scriptures about God being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Surely he knew that Jonah had went to bigger sinners than this lady and preached to the Ninevites and relented from his wrath as they turned from their sin and God forgave them of their sin. He knew the right passages, but failed to live consistent with the passages. So here's, here's the caution, and, and this, is, this is a caution. All right? it's, I, I've, this is not rebuke. I've seen so many ways. I've seen so many ways that our, our church has, has, has a culture of grace that's that's similar to the grace that we've received in Christ Jesus. I've, I've seen how the church has received and cared for ladies who have popped into our church on occasion from the women's shelter for abused women. I've seen you come around and, and serve and love and care for and meet needs. By the time the elders can even get together and decide what we're going to do, the need has already been met. I've watched the, the elders in this church be so gracious and so slow and patient with people who need to be conformed to the image of Christ. So this is, this is not rebuke. This is encouragement to keep going. A, a, as a body, may we continue to be shaped by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. May we not only stand firm in our proclamation of Christ as our only hope, but live consistent with it, seeing people as those who need to come to Christ and be saved, learning to see people as, as more similar to us than different from us. We are all those who need Christ desperately, even though our situations may look a little different. So Simon here, he doesn't, he doesn't know what to do with he doesn't know what to do with a woman who has a reputation. In verse 39, he rationalizes to himself that Jesus cannot be a prophet like some have said. Because if he was, he would have known who this woman is. And if he knew who this woman is, he wouldn't have allowed her anywhere near him. Simon knows who this woman was. He knew her reputation. And yet he's, he's content to condemn her in her sin, and if Jesus were truly a prophet, he would do the same thing. That's the, that's the logic of Simon. Jesus can't be a prophet because he didn't know, and I know he didn't know because he did not keep her away from him. Yet, Jesus does know. He knows her. He knows, he will say later, her sins, though they are Many. He knows her better than she knows her. He knows her far better than Simon knows her. And, and Christ knows us, and he knows me. He sees us clearer than we see ourselves. 
And that's what makes the gospel such great news. The, the Son of God stooped to such levels that were so far below what a Pharisee like Simon would allow. I would never allow this, Simon says. Jesus chose to humble himself, to take on human flesh, and to live as a man on this earth, perfectly fulfilling the will of his Father at all times, and in the end, bearing the penalty for our sins. And Jesus is more than a, a, a friend who puts his arm around you and says, you know what, forget about it, everything's going to be okay. He's the one who has dealt decisively with our sin. By laying down his life, he took our condemnation upon himself. And for this lady, for this lady who has a reputation, who's known as a sinner, for this lady and for anyone who trusts in Christ, no matter your past, no matter your reputation in this community, for anyone who humbles himself and comes to Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's in light of this kind of grace that this woman is so overcome with love and devotion to Christ. And isn't that what we, isn't that what we all want? If you're a Christian this morning, you want to love Christ more deeply. Isn't that what you want for your family? To love Jesus and to be devoted to Him above all else. This should set the, the standard for the values of our families. Husbands, if we want to love our wives well, we, we love Christ supremely. If you want to love well, love Christ. Parents, don't, don't you desire this for your children, that they would love Jesus? And we can put up with a bunch if that's true. We can put up with our children choosing a career path that they, we wouldn't have chosen for them. Maybe they want to go to a college that we don't think is the greatest college in the world. Maybe they choose a spouse that we're a little bit uncertain with. But man, we can put up with a lot of stuff if we know that they love Christ. If you're single this morning, love Jesus. And when it comes time to find somebody who loves, or when it comes time to find someone to marry, find someone who loves Jesus. Not someone who's just kind of willing to hop on the train for now and pretend. Kids and teenagers, I would encourage you, Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of your love and your devotion. In response to Jesus, this woman gives up the most precious thing she had in her entire home. I know that this is true. Loving Jesus will cost you something. Loving Jesus will cost you as a child and as a teenager, but it's worth it. It's worth it to follow and love and be devoted to Christ. So if this is what we desire, if in Christ we all want this same goal, we want the same thing, we should ask from the text, what was it that led this lady to such love and devotion to Christ? We say, I want that. Well, the text answers how we can stir that up in our hearts. I'm going to pick up in verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Point number two, it's a recognition of this grace that stirs our affections and our love for Christ. Jesus responds, Simon was was questioning Jesus to himself. I think that means he's, he's thinking these things. He's pondering these things in his heart. Jesus responds in verse 40. So here you have Simon thinking something and Jesus answering him. Not only does Jesus know who the woman is, but he knows the mind of Simon. So he responds. And it's not going to go well for Simon. I read this great quote this, this week. It said, when Jesus reads minds, a rebuke often follows. <laughs> Last week, you know, we looked, at, we looked at the doubt that arose in John the Baptist. And we surmised as best we could from the text that, that this doubt likely came from expectations that many had of the Messiah that, that looked a little different from what they were seeing in Jesus. Jesus seemed to be uh, hanging around with sinners and tax collectors. And, and where's the axe, Jesus, that's laid at the root of the tree that's ready to chop down this tree in judgment? And so on the heels of that, we see this interaction with Simon the Pharisee, and we see illustrated right before us that, yes, Jesus does judge, and he has come to judge. He has come to separate the wheat from the chaff. However, there were many that were assuming that they were not in the path of God's judgment. They were assuming that they were the wheat. Yet, on the other hand, you have those who, who saw clearly, yes, I am in the path of God's wrath, I'm in the path of God's judgment. So they turn to Christ and they throw themselves at the mercy of God. And that's part of what's happening in this text is that it's meant to be surprising to us who is turning to Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, it's this Roman soldier, the centurion, who becomes a model of faith. And here, still in Luke chapter 7, it's a woman who has a reputation for her sin in the entire city who demonstrates faith and devotion to Christ. And then who is it that stands in the, in the path of divine wrath? It's the Pharisee. It's the Pharisee. If he doesn't turn to Christ... And so Jesus sets out to, to interact with Simon and, and open his eyes to see that he has the same need that the woman of the city need, has. He needs to see clearly. And so he gives them this parable, and the parable's simple enough to understand, right? There's two guys, they owe different amounts of money. One guy owes 500 and that's a lot of money. You know, a, a typical laborer or soldier would make one denarius in a day. So he owes 500 days worth of work to this moneylender. 
That's a lot of work. You know, if you work six days a week, that's over a year and a half. That's a year and nine months. If you gave everything you earned to the money lender, you could pay off your debts. Another guy owes 50 denarii. He could pay that off in a, in a couple months. He could make that money back. This is, this is possible. But for some reason, neither one of these guys is actually able to pay back their money. And this money, this money lender, he does what every banker would do, and he forgives the debt. Yeah, that's sarcasm. And that's the point, of the, that's the point actually. This is shocking that a money lender would say, yes, you owe me a, a year and nine months worth of work. You owe me two months worth of work. Uh, don't worry about it. And notice the, the cancellation of the debt is completely unmerited. That's the point. They had this debt, they couldn't repay it, and it just got canceled because the money lender chose to cancel it. They could not repay their debt. They didn't deserve the cancellation, yet the money lender then takes the debt on himself. He doesn't get that money. And this is what Christ has done for us. Some of you, even now, may be calling to mind Colossians 2, 13 and 14, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus has canceled the debt of sin on the cross. You think, man, what kind of money lender would do this? What kind of money lender says, I will take the debt on myself? Well, the answer is a, a money lender that has deep pockets, a money lender that has money to go around, and a money lender that doesn't need the 500 denarii or the 50 denarii. You see, you see this money lender, he didn't need to extract it from them. And so he is willing to cancel this debt. And we see in God that he is rich in mercy and grace, that his steadfast love endures. Psalm 103 says that his steadfast love is as high as the heavens are above the earth. He is overwhelmingly generous because he doesn't need to extract from us anything that we can give to him to repay him. His grace exceeds all expectations. That's what makes it grace in the first place. That we are completely and utterly unable to repay him one denarii, one ounce of justification. You see, this parable that Jesus tells, it, it even assumes that at some level our, our love is transactional. We, at some level, and it shouldn't be this way, but it often is, we love because we, we have gained something in return. Yet there's nothing. There's nothing that God gains from us that he should owe us something. And so this money lender has canceled this debt. And, and certainly both these guys would be happy to hear that. They would both be happy to learn that, that their debt has been canceled, but one guy is going to be happier than the other. right? One guy just got his mortgage canceled. The other guy got his Kohl's debit card paid off or credit card. So one of the guys is going to write a thank you note. He's going to say, hey, I appreciate it. You know, I was going to get back with you, but I appreciate you paying me or letting me get out of my debt that way. The other guy is going to show up to the money lender's house, knock on his door, jump into his arms and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Simon gets the point at the, at the, at the end of verse 42. 
Jesus says, Simon, which one of these guys is going to love the money lender more? And Simon gets it right. He, he understands the story correctly. Obviously, the one who's forgiven the, the huge debt, he's going to be the one that loves to a greater degree. And so then Jesus commends Simon for understanding the point of the parable in one sense. But clearly, Simon has missed the overall point that Jesus is making, so Jesus keeps pressing. And he points to the woman, and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? And of course, Simon saw her, right? Of course, Simon saw her physically, but he misses the most important thing about this lady, and he doesn't see her the way that Christ sees her. So then Jesus sets out to, to show Simon that the reason she's done this is because she loves me, and the reason she loves me is because she's been forgiven of all her sin. Do, do you see this woman, Simon? She did, she did essentially three things for me when, when she came in. She wet and washed his feet. She kissed his feet, and she anointed his feet with ointment. And so now Jesus turns these things and points out that Simon failed to do anything anywhere close to these sort of actions. So first, in verse 44, Simon failed to wash the feet of Jesus. Now, washing the feet of guests would normally fall to the lowest slave in the home, so it would have been unlikely that Simon would have done this anyways, but he failed to even make preparation for who should have been the honored guest, Jesus. He didn't even have his lowest servant wash the feet of Jesus, yet this lady, she comes in, all she has is tears in her hair, and she sees to it. Second, Simon didn't greet Jesus with a kiss. Now, this was common Right in the culture, it's still practiced in, in many cultures around the world. In fact, Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. Right? That's been one of the harder commands to follow during COVID. But this was common, right? This was this was a common greeting. Simon has failed, but the lady has kissed his feet. Third, Simon didn't anoint Jesus' head with oil. This would have been cheap, available olive oil. You can afford a little bit of oil on my head. But she has brought her most expensive ointment and anointed my feet. Basically, if you had courtesy on this end and you had love on this end, Simon barely makes it onto the courtesy chart. Right? He, he barely has been courteous with Jesus. I mean, he did have Jesus over for dinner. He does address him as teacher, which is sort of a respectful way to address Jesus. But he's demonstrated through his actions that he doesn't truly love Christ. You see, civility, civility towards Jesus is meaningless without faith in Jesus. There's a lot of high praise that happens in the Gospels for Jesus. We think he's a prophet. We think he's a, a, a great teacher. That, that high praise falls short if, if they don't truly, if we don't truly see Christ for who he is, the authoritative Son of God who has come into the world to rescue sinners from their sin. Simon's barely even made it onto the courteous spectrum, yet this woman 
she has demonstrated through her actions her love for Christ. So we've got to wrestle a little bit with verse 47. Jesus concludes this application of the parable this way, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. You know, oftentimes for, it tells us the cause or, or the reason or the ground for something. And I oftentimes point out, hey, look at that for there. It's probably going to tell us the reason. Well, not, not, not here. <laughs> it's functioning different here. It gives us the rationale for Jesus' pronouncement. Her love serves as the evidence of the forgiveness of her sins. This woman's devotion to Christ is the result of her love for Christ that sprang forth in the forgiveness that she has received from Christ. If you just read this flippantly, or you only looked at verse 47, you might walk away wondering if she is forgiven for her sins because she loved the Lord really well. Is she forgiven of her sins because she loved the Lord really well? Well, we can make an argument from the grammar. We might go there in a a moment. But we don't need to actually know Greek to understand the point of this passage. We can look at the context and figure out what is going on here. The parable doesn't make any sense if she is forgiven because of her great love. The parable that Jesus just told makes no sense if she's forgiven because she loved a lot. Remember, the cancellation of the debt was completely and totally unmerited and unearned. There's an order of things that happens in this text that's pretty clear as you take it in its totality. That the forgiveness of sin results in love for Christ that results in devotion to Christ. The forgiveness of sin results in love for Christ. It results in devotion to Christ. Another reason we would say, well, she's not forgiven because of her great love based on the context is the way this passage ends, and we'll get there in a moment, but Jesus affirms that her faith has saved her, not her great love and devotion. And lastly, and probably most convincingly, Jesus' follow-up statement He who is forgiven little, but he who is forgiven little, loves little, makes no sense whatsoever if Jesus is saying she's forgiven because she really, really loved the Lord. There's a clear contrast here. The one who is forgiven much loves much, and we've seen it in the way this lady loves and has devoted herself to Jesus. But, Jesus says, the contrast, but the one who is forgiven loves little. So all of this lady's devotion to Christ, all of her willingness to put her dignity aside and wash Jesus' feet in a pool of her own tears, all of her reverence for Christ can be traced back to one central theme, and it's canceled debt that produced a love for Jesus in her heart. J.C. Ryle said it this way, She had been much forgiven, and so she loved much. Her love was the effect of her forgiveness, not the cause. The consequence of her forgiveness, not the condition. The result of her forgiveness, not the reason. The fruit of her forgiveness, not the roots. Ultimately, the main point of this whole passage crumbles if we fail to understand that um, it's forgiveness, love, and then devotion. 
And here's, here's, I think that little phrase is what Jesus is driving at with Simon this whole time. He who is forgiven little loves little. Now it isn't that Simon doesn't need to be forgiven that much because he's a religious dude, right? That's not what Jesus is driving at. Jesus addresses the Pharisee here from the Pharisee's perspective as a form of ironic conversation. It's like when Jesus said back in Luke 5, I haven't come, it's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. Well, Jesus wasn't saying the Pharisees are well, so they don't need his salvation. He's saying they don't know they're well, so they'll never seek medical help. The same is here it's true here as well. You don't know you need forgiveness, or at best you think you just need a little shove, and so you're never going to love Christ until you see that you are as sick, as needy, as the woman of the city who has a reputation in town. The point is that he doesn't see that he needs forgiveness. He's blind to the way, he's blind to what this lady sees so clearly. He thinks he just needs a little help from God because his sins are little. His debt is low, and so he can repay it with a little bit of time and a little bit of effort. However, we know theologically that what makes our sin so egregious is not that we get to kind of categorize them and deem some sins as worse than others. It's that every sin whether it's self-righteousness or whether it's immoral living, is an offense to a holy and a righteous and a just God. So one writer said there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. There is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. So the point is that anyone with any past who sees their sin as rebellion against God and deserving and inviting His wrath, who humbly comes to Jesus, receives the forgiveness of their sins. And this is really bad news for someone like Simon who wants to cling to their own morality and cling to his own righteousness and go on persisting in his belief that I'm really not that bad, Jesus. I really don't need like a full-fledged Savior I can go before God and I can, I can stand before Him and say, look at, look at my morality, Lord. Get out the scales. Let's weigh this good and bad. This is really bad news for that guy, for that person. But this is, this is really good news. And this is really encouraging news to those of you who, who maybe grew up in church. Those of you who aren't known in your city as an immoral person you've been moral most of your life you've been brought up in a great christian home you've been taught the gospel from a young age you, you you've you've learned to love god and to obey god from the time you were a child this is really good news for you because when i when i came to christ and i i read this passage i thought man i haven't murdered anybody i haven't stolen any cars i haven't punched anybody recently like, is there a cap on how much I can love Jesus? Because he who is forgiven little loves little. But this passage is not about whether your sin resembles the Pharisee's sin or whether your sin resembles the woman's sin. It's about whether you see your sin for what it truly is. 
Do you see it for what it is? It's, it, it's rebellion. It's treason against the one who made you and created you and designed you to love and to worship and to obey his will. If you turn to Christ, if you turn to Christ, he will forgive you. You see, the heart that understands the full and free pardon from sin is the heart that loves God and seeks to be devoted to Him and live a life of glory unto Him. This sort of faith stirs our affections for Jesus. And it's one of the means that God uses to fan into flame a, a, a greater love and devotion and obedience to Christ. Right? We all want more obedience to the Lord. We want more self-control. We want more devotion. Well, what produces this love in us is considering the forgiveness that we have been granted in Christ. Now I say it's one of the means because I think we get ourselves in trouble when we say the only way God sort of stirs your affections is to look to Jesus. When we, when we say like just do this, just, just think about the gospel, you'll never sin again. It's not that. It's that this is one of the most powerful ways that God causes us to love Him more deeply and therefore desire to obey Him more directly. So one thing we can do, I think, as we consider our own lives, as we think about, you know, we talk about putting off sin, putting on righteousness, as we think about, man, what are those areas of my life I need to put on? What's the righteous or, or put off? What's the righteous alternative that I need to put on? We can consider in our own hearts that those things that I so desperately want to put off, that I so desperately hate, have already been paid for. The debt for those things have been canceled. And Lord willing, this creates a greater appreciation, gratitude, and love for Christ that energizes me to actually put on righteousness and to obey Christ and to walk in obedience to the Lord. So after leading Simon down this path where he might see his sin and turn to Jesus like this lady has, Jesus turns his attention back to the lady and he says two things to her in verse 48. First, he says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, again, I'm arguing this is not the moment that she received the full pardon of her sin. The whole point of the passage falls apart if he says, boom, this is the moment. You're forgiven. I think this is an announcement. This is who you are. This forgiveness happened in the past. It continues into the present. It's an assurance from Jesus in the face of the Pharisees in the room who seek to mock and to judge her that are uncomfortable in her presence, that God is aware of your heart and he sees why you did what you did. And so this, this pronouncement, this makes the onlookers uneasy. They're convinced at this point that Jesus isn't even a prophet because he let the lady near him, much less the Son of God. So they, they again, they begin to question themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? The question of Jesus' authority arises again in the book of Luke. We've seen it over and over and over again that Jesus is authoritative. And I love how the Gospel of Luke here, I love how God inspired this text. He beautifully weaves together, as he has already in the Gospel of Luke, the authority of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus. They are not at odds with one another. 
Simon thought there's no way this guy can even be a prophet. But Jesus is more than a prophet. He's the Son of God who has come into the world to say to people like this woman, I know you, I know your past, but I've forgiven your sins. You are forgiven. Now we should take encouragement from that. If you have come to Christ and you are relying, you've thrown yourself at the death and resurrection of Jesus for the full payment, atonement, and forgiveness of your sins, you may be assured of that too. Your sins are forgiven. God knows your past. He knows, like he pronounces about this lady, that your sins are many, whether it's sexual sin, whether it's relational sin, whether it's self-righteousness. He knows it. And if you've come to Christ, it's, it's forgiven. He's covered it. We all have these moments as we consider our lives that, man, maybe something years ago, decades ago, it still produces a pit in your stomach. And you wrestle with regret and disappointment, wishing you could go and change the past. What's well, that, that feeling that should draw us closer to Christ? That he knows that about you. And there are consequences for sin. There are things that we may have to deal with in this world because of choices that we made in the past. But know that God does not count your sins against you if you are in Christ. He does not bring them back up to harm you if you are in Christ. And it's this hope that draws us closer to Christ. It fans the flame of our love for him. And as we grow in our love for Christ, we find ourselves more fully willing to walk in obedience to his good word. The second thing Jesus says, the last thing he says is, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, that's just one last reminder that this is, isn't the woman's acts of devotion that saved her, but her trust in Jesus. She can go in peace, assured with the knowledge that God sees her faith, and she can God's declaration that she has been forgiven. She can rest. See, this woman was labeled a sinner by society. But as God peers into her heart, he sees the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Jesus. That will be the basis of her justification. The gospel creates people like this lady a nameless lady who has a past, even a recent past, that is, by all accounts, characterized by her sin. But she has received the forgiveness of Christ, and therefore she loves Christ. She stands in contrast to Simon the Peter, who, or not Simon the Peter, <laughs> the Pharisee. He's made a name for himself. His name snuck its way into the Bible. But God is not impressed with his religious parade of his own self-righteousness. Instead, what we see about Jesus in this text is that he's gentle with the brokenhearted. He's gentle with those who are contrite over their sin. He's gentle with those who recognize their sin, even if it has characterized our lives and call out to Christ. And when we recognize the forgiveness that we've been given in Christ, we grow in our love for him and obedience to him. I don't know if I've ever shared this illustration or not. I, I couldn't find anywhere in my notes that I had. But if I have, forgive me. 
when Harrison was little, he was learning to talk, and his S's sounded like T's. And um, it created some funny moments. But one thing that I loved, when he sang that old uh, children's song, Yes, Jesus Loves Me. But it sounded like this. Yet, Jesus loves me. Yet, Jesus loves me. Yet, Jesus loves me. I think somehow, accidentally, not of his own volition, Harrison has come up with a more theologically correct song. Despite our sin, despite our unworthiness, despite our rebellion, yet, Jesus loves me. May this produce in us a deeper love for Christ and devotion to Him. Let's pray. Father, we are so undeserving. We owed a debt we could never repay. Yet in Christ, when you peer into our hearts, if we stand justified before you, you see the perfection of Jesus. And so, Lord, may we rest in that. May we go in peace. In Jesus' name, amen.